All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of being here as family. Thank you for faithfully opening up this church, Father, for gathering us together to fellowship in your Son's good name. This is such a privilege, Father. May we never become familiar with it, but recognize it for what it truly is. It's a grace gift from you to your children. We pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us this morning for a variety of reasons. We pray for their return, Father. We love them. We long for their fellowship. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, without hope that before it's too late, they be humbled and receive saving faith. Father, we're most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on that cross 2,000 years ago to cancel out that debt and to make a morning like this a grace gift to be enjoyed. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. <clears throat> Again, this is a special message, love, hate, and grace. But it came from our primary course of study. Uh, on Thursday, the Spirit, we finished up our work on Proverbs 17.5, if you recall. So for the sake of context, and since we haven't done so in a while, let's read the entire passage up until that point. Go to Proverbs 17, verse 1. Proverbs 17, 1, and we're going to use that um, as our launching pad. Okay, so there is continuity as there always is with our primary course of study, but there's just so much to be said on this one topic that um, we're going to spend our time there. So Proverbs 17, 1, we studied all of these verses out in detail so far. Better is a dry morsel <clears throat> with quiet than a house full of feasting with strife. A servant who deals wisely will rule over a son who acts shamefully and will share the inheritance as one of the brothers. The crucible is for silver and the furnace is for gold. And the Lord tests hearts. An evildoer listens to wicked lips, and a liar gives ear to a mischievous tongue. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. And so that's where we've pretty much been postured for a while now. Um, and it just so happens that the past few messages have taken on a little refresher course on the topic of sin itself, because that whole idea of verse 5 really got to the, the marrow of who we are as sinners and what motivates a sinner to do something as heinous as what we see in verse 5. And so that really just 
precipitated a refresher course on the topic of sin itself. And it's been great because, frankly, sin is the reason we're even here this morning. Let's face it. That's why we're here. Uh, if it wasn't for sin, if it weren't for sin, we'd not be concerning ourselves with salvation from it. Fair enough? If sin didn't exist, we wouldn't be concerned about being saved or delivered from it. This whole exercise, like this morning, wouldn't even be necessary. We would just be fellowshipping with God, like Adam and the woman did in the garden before the fall. So, sin is the reason why this world is such a mess. It's sin. Sin is the reason why you can't sleep at night sometimes. Sin is the reason why some of your loved ones, sadly, are going to spend eternity in the lake of fire. Doesn't that last point just make you hate sin? Doesn't it? I hate it. Like, I hate the thought of someone I love spending eternity in hell. I hate that thought. I hate sin so bad up here on the board. So learn to hate sin. Learn to hate sin. It's okay. You know, my mom would be like, don't hate. Oh, no, no, no. Hate sin. Sin's the reason for all of this. Do not be overcome with hate, though. Don't become that person. But rather, understand the insidiousness of sin and learn to hate it. God does. We're going to talk an awful lot this morning about the sphere of God versus the sphere of spiritual death which is tantamount to saying the sphere of love versus the opposite of love, the sphere of death. Or excuse me, the sphere of hate in the sphere of death. We're going to talk a lot about that. But learn to hate sin. Do not be overcome with hate, but rather understand the insidiousness of sin and learn to hate it. God does. In fact, as we noted on Thursday, God is so holy... He can't even look upon it with anything but hatred. Up here on the board, Habakkuk 1.13, part A, in the New American Standard, your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. You're just too pure. You're too holy. He's perfectly holy. Anything outside of his holiness, he can't look on with any favor whatsoever. That's just a, another way of saying he hates it. So, to kick this off, I want to point something out to you here and now. And this is really important. There's a myth. There's a myth on the streets of Christendom that supposes because God is love, that's 1 John 4.18, right? God is love. We know that he is love. that somehow he cannot hate. 
That's a myth. That, you know, there's no, there's no room, with all that love, there's no room for the wrath of God. And this is a lie from the pit of hell. Meant to rob you of your peace. It's a lie. You might be saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. A God that's only love, that sounds a lot more peaceful thought to my soul than one who hates as well. You might say that. Jeez, a God that's, you know, only love and no wrath and no, no hatred. That seems peaceful to me. And you know what? That's exactly how Satan in the kingdom of darkness wants you to think about God. Because that God is a false God. That's not our God. We have to go with this. Do you understand? If it's here, we have to accept it. And if it says that God hates certain things, then you know what? He hates them. If he says he loves certain things, you know what? He loves them. And that's it. We don't get to be all emotional. We don't get to say, oh, but it feels better if God was only love. And let's run with that for a while. Let's run with that as a religion. We don't get to do that because that's not the word of God. That's not the mind of Christ. We have the word of God for a reason, so that we can learn from it, so that we can accept the truth in humility. Not any preconceptions that we bring to the table. So Satan and the kingdom of darkness, they want you to think of God that way. But again, that's a false god, a god that really doesn't even exist. Unless you think of you know, the god of this world, which is Satan who's behind such thinking. But let me show you what I mean. Go to Psalm 5, verse 4. Psalm 5, verse 4. Not only is this a long message, but it's requiring a lot of concentration. I'm going to do the best I can for you. Psalm 5, verse 4. For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. Think of the sphere of God. Evil may not dwell with you. He can't accept it unto himself, in other words. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You hate all evildoers. Do you read those four words with me? You what? Hate all what? Evildoers. Like as in people. Yes. That's what the Bible says. That's what the holy word of truth has to say. You hate all evildoers. Now, just so you don't think there's some way of rationalizing this language away to suit your, you know, your fleshly desires. Well, I don't like that. You know, that God scares me. Good. It's called fear. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Good. You're supposed to fear him. 
the one who can cast a soul into hell. You're supposed to fear God. Up here on the board, from the Hebrew sonnet, what's translated, you hate in this passage. It means enemy, foe, be hateful, odious, utterly. In the New American Standard, it's translated, detest once, enemy three times, enmity once, foes one, hate 78 times, hatred 28 times, hate hated her intensely one time, hates 19, hating two, hatred one, turned against one, turns, turns against two, unloved seven. Any questions? It seems regardless of the context of the passage, whenever this Hebrew word exists, whenever it's used, it means exactly what it looks like at face value. There's not some kind of, you know, other hatred in view, in other words. It's hate, and we can accept it as hate. But we have to understand it biblically, and I'll get to that a little bit later. It's not necessarily pure emotion like we are. You're like, oh, I hate that person. In God's world, from God's perspective, hatred is the opposite of love. He hates unholiness. He hates things or creatures that are separate from his holiness. That's what hatred in the Bible is. But that'll develop in you the more you learn what the Spirit's going to present this morning. But a good place to start in that vein of thinking is that hatred is the opposite of love. Hatred is the opposite of love. As we can see, this word sane in the, in the Hebrew is actually translated seven times as unloved in the New American Standard. So, is it fair to accept that when the Bible says in our verse that God hates all evildoers, Psalm 5.5, we just read it, that hate is hate? Yeah. Yes. Indeed. But we don't want to stop right there. Let's finish the thought. Look at verse 5 again. It says, The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. God hates up here on the board. Now, all evildoers is actually three Hebrew words. Call, Paul, and Avin. Call is all, Paul is work as a doers. Avin is trouble, sorrow, wickedness. Okay? Literally, it translates all workers or doers of trouble, sorrow, wickedness in context uh, points to unbelievers who do this work as a function of their fallen nature. So just because you do something evil this afternoon doesn't mean that God all of a sudden hates you because you have a new creature. You've been made new. You've been purified in his eyes. So I'm not, we're not talking about believers here. We're specifically talking about unbelievers. God hates all evildoers. All an unbeliever can do. What does the Word of God say? An unbeliever can do nothing that's pleasing in the sight of the Lord. Nothing. So now you're starting to get this idea of what hatred from God's perspective actually is. 
You can't do anything holy. I have to give you the ability. I have to transform you even at salvation so that you can do anything that's not evil. Otherwise, everything you do as an unbeliever is evil. And by the way, I hate evil, and therefore I hate you. And you say, wow, that's really strong. That's what the Bible says. Unless you're reading a different Bible, that's literally what the Bible says. Hmm. Let me give you a few other translations just to amplify this point up here on the board. Psalm 5.5 in the Amplified reads, The boastful and the arrogant will not stand in your sight. You hate all who do evil. Next, Darby's translation, Psalm 5.5. Insolent fools shall not stand before thine eyes. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. And then finally, Young's literal translation. The boastful station not themselves before thine eyes. Thou hast hated all working iniquity. All right, back to our original translation. Look at verse 5 again. The boastful, in your Bible, the boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Now, I'll restate the cause for this spirit taking the extra time with this this morning on this topic. There's a reason. There's a purpose. Because there's a myth on the streets of Christendom that supposes that because God is love, which is a true statement, 1 John 4.8 says it, God is love. We have to accept that too. Right alongside, God hates all evildoers. We have to accept both, because they're both clearly stated. And to God, it's not confusing to him. He's like, yeah, that's true. Our emotions get in the way. Our preconceptions about God get in the way. All of it gets in the way. But there's that myth that since God is love, he cannot hate. And that's a lie. God's hatred is not only justified, it's expected. What do you expect from a perfect, holy God in the presence of something unholy? What do you expect from a per the, the source of pure love? What do you expect from that person in the presence of evil? So hatred is not only justified, it's expected. So, if you understand and accept that God is perfectly holy, then it makes sense that his hatred exists towards the unholy. It makes perfect sense. Of course it makes sense. I want to ensure you, I want to ensure that you understand this one thing right now. Listen. The Bible doesn't say that God just hates sin. The Bible says that God hates the sinner. Did we not just read that? What's the problem then? Why are some of you like, oh, like gasping, oh my, what? 
I told you I had to go long to finish this because right now some of you are like, oh, this better end well. There better be some good news here. Oh, good news as in gospel? There is. There is. But I need you to understand what the Bible says. You need to understand it by reading your own Bible. The Bible doesn't just say God hates sin. He says he hates the sinner. But to be accurate to Holy Scripture, the Bible says that God hates the sinner whose sin remains uncovered. Does that make sense? Uncovered. Or to use the language from Thursday's message, unatoned for. Again, the Bible says that God hates the sinner whose sin remains uncovered. Or to use the language from Thursday's message, unatoned for. This is precisely how David started out in Psalm 32, as we read recently up here on the board. Psalm 32, 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Sounds like the other person is awfully cursed, huh? By the very wrath of God, the hatred of God upon them. But David said, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessing is the opposite of cursing. And just to drive this home, the Apostle Paul actually quoted David's words here in Psalm 32. Go to Romans 4, verse 1. Romans 4, verse 1. If we're going to understand the grace and knowledge of God, then you know what? We have to know Him. Amen? We have to know Him. And if He shares His mind with us through the Word of God, then we have to accept it. We may not even, our flesh might, be, might not even like it. We might be like, ow! Oh, I don't really, I'm not really, I'm not really down with that. Too bad. He's the holy God of the universe. You adjust to him. He doesn't adjust to you. If he says he hates something, then he hates it. It's that simple. If he says he loves it, he loves it. It's that simple. Romans 4.1 What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him, who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks, and this is a reference to Psalm 32, which we just read, of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness, apart from works. I just alluded to that earlier. An, an unbeliever can, can't do good works, can't do righteous works, right? Verse 7, 
Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. What a relief. You mean there's a covering for that? Yes. Yes. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin, which implies that to some he will. So again, here's the myth. Because God is love, somehow he cannot hate. God hates sin and therefore those still in it because their sin remains uncovered. So God, quote, sees that sin plainly in the sinner who owns it. The unholiness of that person. So let me try to describe this reality with an illustration. I've already been doing it, but if God is love and he exists in the sphere of said love, so all love is bound within the sphere of God. God is love. And he's the sole source of all love and all things good. And by default, man is born spiritually dead, which means to be separated from God, at enmity with him, which places all unbelievers outside the sphere of God. But remember, all love exists inside that sphere. But man is born outside of that sphere. You can all see a Venn diagram again, right? All believers are born outside the sphere of God. Where does that leave the unsaved person? If God's sphere is love, and the opposite of love is hate, and you are not in God's sphere, where does that place you? In hate. Now you understand the biblical definition of love and hate. That's God's perspective on the situation. He says, I'm love. I'm love. That's hate. So I hope you see the visual I'm trying to paint for you here. Now, do you now understand why I said earlier, just that visual, why we ought to expect God to hate the sinner? Does that make sense? Like, do do you understand why we ought to expect it? If he's the perfect, holy God of the universe, and all love is contained within the sphere of him, And there are things that do exist outside of that sphere. Wouldn't we expect him to have a biblical hatred towards those things? Yes. So here's a good question for you up here on the board. The direction of God's hatred. If God only hates sin, then why does he cast some away from himself, from love, from the sphere of love, namely unbelievers who die in their sins? In other words, why... If he only hates sin, then why does he cast sinners into hell? 
Could it be to preserve the purity of love itself? Could it be the just and righteous thing to do after all? He says, I have no part. We just read that at the start of the message. I have no part in evil. I can't. I'm holy. Even if he, quote, wanted to. He can't. You don't get that, right? I suppose he has a little slip up. He couldn't because he's, he's perfect. His integrity is perfect. He's holy. He's perfectly holy. He cannot be tainted. Could it be then the just and righteous thing to do after all? To sentence someone for good away from himself. To preserve what we're going to enjoy as believers for all of eternity. Yes, that's exactly true. And I know some of you already started, right? And I get it. Hey, wait a minute, what about John 3.16? For God so loved the world. I'll ask the same question. What about John 3.16? What about it? What is your argument on John 3.16? Or do you just have a shirt or a tattoo? What is it about John 3.16 that would bother you about any of this? So let's read this passage. Go to John 3.16. Let's read it. John 3.16. Yeah, what about John 3.16? John 3.16. Maybe the most famous biblical verse in history. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. In other words, they are blessed, a la uh, Psalm 32, 1-2. Whoever believes in him is not condemned in other words, is blessed, but whoever does not believe is condemned already. In other words, cursed, like Psalm 5.5, because all they can do is do evil. Again, whoever believes in him is not condemned, blessed. Whoever does not believe, uh, in, uh, does not believe is condemned already, in other words, cursed, because he has not believed in the name of the, son, the only Son of God. So ask yourself this one question, and I need you to dwell on it today. If John 3.18 says, those who do not believe are condemned already, and those are the same people that Psalm 5.5 states clearly that God hates, then what say you of the phrase in John 3.16, for God so loved the world? Does Holy Scripture ever contradict itself? Never. May it never be, right? Never. God is not a God of confusion. If you're confused right now, that's not God's fault.
How do you personally reconcile what we just saw in Psalm 5.5? God hates all evildoers. That person's condemned already for their unbelief. How do you reconcile? And there's a lot of, <laughs> trust me when I say it, there are a lot of passages in Holy Scripture just like Psalm 5.5, where the Bible is unapologetic of revealing God's hatred towards sin and sinners. How do you reconcile Psalm 5.5 with John 3.16? I'm not going to say anything more about that right now, but I want you to take the time to think about this thing. And do not lean on your own understanding. Be willing to accept what the Bible clearly states and then work from there. Don't try to fit the Bible into your preconceptions. Oh, no, 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 no. You read what the Bible says. And if it says it clearly, then you accept it as clearly stated doctrine. And if two things don't add up in your brain right now, well, that's for you to work out. You need to accept what the Bible clearly states, and then you work from there. You don't try to fit it into your preconceptions about God. Because as I started off with this morning, there's a lot of people that call themselves Christians that don't even believe in the wrath of God. And they can read the same Bible? That's a person or persons trying to work the Bible into their little, tidy little human framework of who they want God to be. Let's finish this beautiful passage of Holy Scripture again. Verse 18, <clears throat> Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Verse 19, And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. They loved the darkness rather than light. In other words, they loved being in the sphere of darkness. They liked it over there. What do you expect the holy God of the universe to think of those people? Not just their sins, those people. What do you expect from the perfect, holy, sovereign God of the universe? Verse 20. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his works should be exposed. Up here on the board, hates the light. This is the most natural thing of all for the wicked. In fact, it's exactly what we would expect from unbelievers because they exist in the sphere of spiritual death. Remember when we studied out uh, Proverbs 17.5? Why would the one mock the Creator? Because they like to listen to their own counsel. Do you remember all that? They, they're in that sphere. They like it in there together. We went to Romans 1, 18 to 32. 
And we looked at it, how they pat each other on the back. They like that sphere. There's a certain gravity to it for them because they hate the light. Because they're antagonistic to truth. So it's what we would expect. It's what we would expect, you see. Even just logically. You don't even have to think about it. It's not even an emotional thing. Just think of it logically. So again, hates the light. This is the most natural thing of all for the wicked. In fact, it's exactly what we would expect from unbelievers because they exist in the sphere of spiritual death, where spiritual death equals separation from God, who is love. Verse 21. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So, I'll ask you again. It's a serious question. Some of you are probably offended by the question, but that's too bad. Are you sure you fully understand John 3.16? Are you sure you fully understand John 3.16, or is that just a punchline to you? Or maybe you've just simply believed what you want to believe about that famous verse. Maybe you just believe what you want to believe about it. And that's a good question, isn't it? Do you really, are you really sure you understand the most famous verse of all? Let me say this. John 3.16 is simultaneously among the most beautiful statements ever made in human history and among the most abused. Simultaneously, among the most beautiful things and the most abused. Let me think about this with you. You know, if you've been in front of this pulpit for a while, well, since well, October of 2015, with the whole gospel reload, you know what the spirits had to say about this watered-down gospel that exists in contemporary so-called Christianity, right? You know it exists. You know why it exists. You know how it exists. You know the details of it. Painstakingly, we've gone through this as a congregation. What's the message of this watered-down gospel? I ask you to ponder this. Well, it does have variations. Not every false religion or false gospel is the exact same, but it seems invariably to include this false doctrine, this myth, that since God is love, he accommodates the human flesh. You know like a bad parent would do? You know, they got a little brat for a kid, and they just enable the little kid to be, keep being a little brat. That's not love, right? That's not love. That's enablement, which is evil. But that's the God that people want. They want a God that accommodates their human flesh. They want to say, God is love, and therefore, because he loves me so much emotionally like, that he'll do anything for me. He'll spoil me, because that's what true love is, right? To spoil someone. That's the opposite of love, because you're damaging your own child. 
And God's not like that. And then the audacity of these people, they take that grotesque thing, that disgusting doctrine, and they call it grace. God loves me so much, he'll grace me out with, quote, blessings that are going to destroy you. That's not my God. My God would rather whip your behind. So they have the audacity to pervert the most beautiful thing we've ever known, which is the gospel of Jesus Christ. They pervert it. They water it down. And they call it love. And they say, it's gracious. Oh, and they sing about it for 30 minutes before service. And everybody's all emotional. And tears are crying. And it's a, it's a false God. It's a false gospel. And people are chewing it up like candy. Because it tastes good to the human flesh. It's accommodating to the human flesh. So that false gospel, that line of thinking that contemporary Christianity seems to have adopted, it opens up theological speculation that there's no longer a need to confess. I mean, what, what do you even need to confess? God's so loving, he just cares that you're going to spend time with him. He doesn't even care if you confess. He doesn't even care if you agree with him. And since you don't have to confess, then what, what good is repentance? There's no need for repentance. I'd throw that out too. Right? There's no need to pay attention to what Jesus said when he said, deny yourself. You see, that's what happens. Once you crack the gospel, once you break the gospel into something it isn't, you destroy it by perverting it, then all hell breaks loose. And all you're left with is a free ticket to heaven based on some vapid decision that you supposedly made when you were five or 20 or whatever. I don't know, whatever happened, you supposedly. So what we have in contemporary Christianity is a bunch of delusional unbelievers who think they've secured a trip to heaven based on a lie. And the saddest thing is that a lot of their friends and family are in the same boat. So nobody's raising a flag like I am here this morning. And it's the greatest tragedy of all. Let's see what Jesus had to say about this type of delusion. Okay? Go to Luke 11.33. Luke 11.33. Because that's what it is. It's a delusion. There are a lot of delusional Christians out there. Here's what Jesus had to say on the topic of the mind of Christ, on the topic of his own gospel. Verse 33, he said, No one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand, so that those who enter may see the light. In other words, he's referring to a true believer's light shining. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. 
But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Therefore, he said, Jesus said, be careful, lest the light in you be darkness. If then your whole body is full of light, having no part dark, it will be wholly bright, as when a lamp with its rays gives you light. Why would Jesus be warning those in his presence about being careful that the light in them wasn't darkness? In the context of this morning's message, could it be that God's wrath is upon those who remain in darkness? Could it be? Could it be that Jesus was a judgment preacher? Could it be that Jesus knew 100% full well of the wrath of God, being God? Again, could it be that God's wrath is upon those who remain in darkness, even though they think they are in the light? That's the slippery slope. That's the lie. Could it be that this wrath is the result of a holy, righteous hatred of sin? And since some people are still, what the Bible says, in their sins, Jesus said, if you don't believe in me, you will die in your sins. And you will feel the wrath of God. Again, could it be that this wrath is a result of a holy, righteous hatred of sin? And since some people are still in their sins, that hatred is directed at them, the sinner? What does the Bible say? It says, do not lean on your own understanding. Which implies, read the Word of God. Learn truth and accept what the Word has to say about all of this. Not what you want to believe. Do not lean on your own understanding. The Bible also says very clearly, God hates all evildoers. Psalm 5.5. Did we not just read that? Yeah. So you shouldn't have a problem with that. Here's our previous principle up here on the board. The direction of God's hatred. If God only hates sin, then why does he cast some away from himself, from the sphere of love, namely unbelievers, who die in their sins? Could it be to preserve the purity of love itself? Could it be the just and righteous thing to do after all? So we have to think of hate, and I tried to get this situated in you at the start of the message. We have to think of hate in terms of the absence of love, like, dar like darkness. What's darkness if it's not the absence of light? That's what defines darkness. There's no light, right? That's hatred. It's the absence of love, just like darkness is the absence of light because light and love are in the sphere of God. And outside of him, outside of that sphere, these things don't exist. So if there's no light and no love, what are you left with? 
darkness and hate. If there's no life, then what's left? Death. If it's not good, then what's left? Evil. Did you follow the pattern here? That's why I always use those visuals, the spheres, because that's exactly what the Bible gives us. So we have to think of hate not even, in, not even as an emotional thing. Uh, just think of it in terms of the absence of love. Stated differently, whatever is not of God must be void of his intrinsic qualities. Love is one of those qualities, and the opposite is hate. So, a person not in union with him, in other words, not reconciled through Christ with him, positionally sanctified, right? Someone who's not positionally sanctified, not cleansed, where God sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to that person. Not a righteousness of their own because God knows that an unbeliever cannot be righteous on their own. A person who's not that is void of love and therefore abides in the sphere of hate. And since this describes the unbeliever, the one who, quote, dies in their sins, then we must conclude that God hates unbelievers. Somebody like, oh my goodness, stop saying that. I didn't say it. We literally just read it in Holy Scripture. Now, here's my disclaimer, because some of you are like, God hates my kid. Disclaimer. God's hate is not like a human's. It's not this emotional, I hate you, I'm going to punch you in the throat. That's an emotional knee-jerk reaction, right? So God's hate is not like a human's. God, God's hatred stems from anything being unholy. He's perfectly holy. And he's infinitely holy. So anything that's not infinitely that way with him, he hates. Because it's infinitely that way away from him. So God's hatred stems from anything being unholy. And that's how you have to think about God's hate in the Bible. It's not like us, where we typically show, you know, little or no grace to those we even dislike. We're going to close out this message on this very thought. For now, though, the Spirit needs you to read this verse up here on the board and accept it as truth. Up here on the board. Psalm 5.5. I'll give you the Amplified. <clears throat> The boastful and the arrogant will not stand in your sight. You hate all who do evil. Unbelievers are cursed. That's a fact. They're born under the curse of sin. I mean, that's the very essence of what God promised would happen in the garden at the fall. He said, dying you shall die. Dying spiritually, you'll even die physically. 
Spiritual death means separation from me. I hate it over there. Therefore, I hate anybody who exists over there. I say, man, that's strong language. Good. Good. Now, here's where we get to the crux of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In this, when you've got that much on you, you know, some of you are like, oh, man, this is awful. And it is. But when you have something that awful right in front of you, out of Holy Scripture, undeniable, you have something that awful. When something beautiful comes along, it's really beautiful. So here's where we get to the crux of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the purpose of this special message. So just think about it. Some of you are like, yeah, I don't even need to. It sounds like a pretty hopeless and helpless situation that unbelievers find themselves in, doesn't it? You have the wrath of God on you. Full force. Justified. Expected. I mean, to be hated by the holy God of the universe is a pretty tough pill to swallow. And you know what? It should be. That's the point. It should be. But here's the most beautiful thing of all here. You ready? God in his infinite grace. So here's God, perfect and holy and loving. Did I just blow a tweeter? Something blue, right? Blood vessel? Perfectly holy, loving. Looks and says, I hate that. I'm holy. I'm perfect. What's not with me, I hate. God, in his infinite grace, reaches out across that chasm to those whom he hates. And he says, I will save you. God in his infinite grace reaches out across that chasm to those whom the Bible says he hates. And he says, I will save you. So I want to read the secret, let's call it to unlocking all of this tension. I can see it in your body language even, right? To unlocking this tension that the Spirit's built up in you on purpose this morning. I'm sure some of you are pretty uncomfortable right about now. Even those of you who consider yourselves mature in the Word. So I need you to concentrate as we discover the key to setting you free from this tension. Because the truth always does that for us. Amen? The truth sets us free. We do come upon these times like, oh my goodness, I'm tense right now. Oh my goodness, I do not like this message. Anytime we run up against the, the raw truth of sin, 
it's going to be uncomfortable unless we're playing pretend about it. Unless we play that little game that we play with ourselves when we sin. It's not that bad. I'm just going to cherry coat it. Put a little coat of paint on it so I don't have to look at it so much. Anytime we, we tear all that down, we look at something so raw from God's perspective. It's a little disturbing. What did I say at the start of class? Learn to hate sin. God does. Always remember that Jesus speaks his mind, which is perfectly harmonious with the word of God as we know and read it. In other words, when we read red letters in the Bible like we're going to, it's not disjoint at all with any other part of Holy Scripture or the doctrines that we're given, like Psalm 5.5, God hates all evildoers. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. When Jesus speaks, it's perfectly harmonious with all of it. Choose your spot. Open up the Bible anywhere. The mind of Christ. Amen? Amen. So as we read this passage, just remember that Jesus' words are the word of God. Go to Luke 6.32. Luke 6.32. Luke 6.32. If you love those who love you, I need you to think about Christ's mind here. Think big picture. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. 35, but love your enemies. In other words, that's what I, Jesus Christ, do. That's my mind. And do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In other words, Psalm 5.5, evildoers. So, what does the mind of Christ in Psalm 5.5 say about God's heart towards the evil? What did we read? It says God hates evildoers. But Jesus is revealing the heart of God towards those he hates. What is it? He's gracious. Listen to me. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God or any of us has to love a person to be gracious and merciful towards them. Nowhere in the Bible does it say that God or any of us has to love a person as a prerequisite to be gracious or merciful towards them. Doesn't the Bible teach us over and over that God and Jesus in his incarnation is gracious and merciful to the unworthy? 
Does it ever say that he has to love a person in order to show them grace? Never. Never. In fact, the most amazing thing of all is that he shows grace when he doesn't love that person. I want to show you something. First, isn't that what Jesus is trying to teach us right now? In Luke 6, 32 to 35. Isn't that what we're being taught right now? If, we're miss, if you're missing it, you're not paying attention. You're looking for certain clues that might justify something ungodly, some thought that cannot be reconciled with Psalm 5, 5. So, as I mentioned earlier, you might have to listen to this message again. I'm probably going to. Here's one more verse to help really drive home what the Spirit's saying up here on the board. I'll give you West's expanded, Kenneth West. Romans 5.8. But God is constantly proving his own love to us. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ in behalf of us died. Constantly proving his own love to us. Now, here's, I need you to concentrate. Here's the key. God is revealing his love to us in this verse. And that's different than saying he's revealing his love for us. In other words, you are still a sinner as an unbeliever. You are a sinner. And God reveals his love to us to that person. It doesn't say for that person. It says to that person. Now this is the crux of the message. So please listen. In other words, we cannot draw conclusions from Holy Scripture that aren't warranted. In other words, His love exists because He is love. We got that established, right? He is love. His love exists in the sphere of him. 1 John 4, 8 says he is love. His love doesn't exist because we are worthy of it as we are born in sin. His love exists because that's who he is. Does that make sense? And so he reveals that love to the unworthy. It doesn't say he loves us because we're worthy of it. The Bible says he hates all evildoers. How do we reconcile this? Well, we do know that he is love. And he reveals that love to people he has a hatred towards. I hope that makes sense because that, my friends, is the key to unlocking the very truth about the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's also the key to actually understanding John 3.16 instead of just supposing you understand it fully like a lot of Christians do. If you don't understand what I just said, then you don't understand John 3.16. You're proposing 
that the same mind that said, I hate all evildoers, loves them magically, or you can actually understand what I just taught, that God reveals his love to those people, regardless of what he thinks about them in their sins, because of who and what he is. That's what grace is. That's called grace. God expresses his love to us because that's who he is. It's not for us in our broken, sinful state. He hates sin. He casts people who die in that sin to the lake of fire. Doesn't sound like love to me. Sounds like wrath. Sounds like hatred. Get away from me forever. You have to accept that. You say, then how do we ever get saved? I just said it. He loves because of who he is. And by grace, he offers a way back to him. We call that reconciliation. Because of who he is. To bring glory to himself. Not because of this wretched creature. That's what grace is. If you really want to understand what grace is, I just described it very clearly. What a false contemporary Christianity will say is, no, 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 no. God will move a little bit. God will move a little bit. He'll say, no, 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 I, I, I like, you're a pretty swell guy. I, I love you enough. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to accommodate your human flesh. I'm going to move towards you a little bit. As a lie from the pit of hell. You've missed grace. That's not grace. God moving from perfection towards imperfection, unholiness, sin. That's not grace. It's not even love. Because to move away from where love is, you'd be moving, leaving love behind. That's not grace. That's the perversion in Christianity today. That God is so loving that he actually accommodates or, or compromises his own righteous integrity. His own righteous judgment about that thing, that ugliness, that sin. The person who dies in it. That's not holiness. That's perversion. I don't want that God, neither do you. That's the God that Satan wants you to think about. That's the God that Satan and the kingdom of darkness want you to put your trust in. Because it's accommodating. But it's not him. It's not him. It's not even grace. It's a perversion of grace. That's the whole point. God expresses his love to us because that's who he is. That is the very definition of biblical grace. And this harmonizes perfectly with Psalm 5.5, which says the object of his hatred is the evildoers. Unbelievers. Up here on the board. Unlocking grace in the gospel. God is gracious because he is love. 
This graciousness has nothing to do with anyone else. Nor anyone who receives the benefits of it. This grace proves his own love to us. Romans 5.8, Allah, John 3.16. He loves because of who he is. In other words, it's like the sun, right? He just emanates love. Not because of who we are. In other words, he's not attracted to us as sinners. There's nothing attractive about us. He says he hates all evildoers. That literally is the definition of a sinner. Sons of disobedience, anyone? Right? That's, that's all we are. Without him. We're dead in our trespasses. We will die in our sins unless he imputes his own righteousness to us, reconciles us to himself, and he says, now I can look at you. I couldn't look at you before. But by grace motivated by who I am, I am love, I reached across that chasm and at least made a way for you. Back to me. I'm not moving. And how dare anybody that stands around a pulpit on a Sunday morning with a cross on their thing does anything to betray me that way, to compromise my own integrity. What I say stands. I'm the holy creator. I don't have to move. You chose to move away from me. I've been here all along. But because of who I am, I'll prove my love to you. By showing you grace, I'll send my son to die for you because you are incapable. So I know this is a lot to take in. My voice is about ready to blow out. All the Spirit's trying to give you this morning is the biblical perspective on sin and grace. Sinners and God. It's the same perspective Jesus Christ was speaking of when he spoke in Luke 6. And you need to go home and think about this stuff. You need to get it right. Verse 35, but love your enemies. That's what I do. That's my mind. I reveal my love to them because of who I am. Do you understand? It's not a personal love he's talking about there. It's not a love that says because of who they are. It's a love because of who I am. I emanate that love. I show them grace even though they suck. Do you understand? Do you understand the mind he's imparting to you? That's what it means to love like God. They're your enemies. We've established this. They're your enemies. You don't like them. You don't even like them. You might even, quote, hate them. But he says, love them. Why? For who you are. You love them because of who you are. Just like my Father in heaven. Just like me. Because we're one and the same. And that's what we're trying to do to you. We're trying to sanctify you so you start thinking that way. So that you understand what grace is. So you stop being a crappy parent. And moving from here back towards your kids. Because you suck. I don't suck as a parent. I'm the best. I'm perfect. I'm not talking about me. Right? You know what I'm saying? This is Father speaking, right? Stop compromising. You love because of who you are. You stand firm in who you are. In the sphere of love. And it's okay to have indignation against things that are against that sphere. 
why he says, what, what fellowship has, has this with Belial? There isn't. It's a Venn diagram that's mutually exclusive. But he does say, love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. See, that snips the, I'm doing this for you because I want something in return. It, it snips the personal relationship angle into love. No, 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 no. You just go boldly out into the world and you love. Does that make sense? God is love. Jesus was the walking manifestation of love. What did he do? He just loved. He loved his enemies. He showed this is what love is. Remember Romans 5.8? God reveals his love to us while we were yet sinners. In other words, while we were enemies. That's what love is. And if you understand what love is, then you understand what grace is. Grace can do this thing in verse 35. Can love because of who you are. Talk about freedom. Look that out a little bit. Talk about, you mean I can bask in the sphere of love? I can, abide, I can wake up in the morning in love, pure, unadulterated love? It has nothing to do with anyone else? Yes. Now you're starting to understand God. And when that love emanates out, even towards your enemies, because even, a, even you can love even someone you love, right? Didn't he say that earlier in the passage? What good is that? I mean, even sinners do that. No, 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 no. I want you to love like God loves. I want you to love like God loves because you benefit. That's the beauty. On the backbone of what we learned this morning, the ugliness, it's grotesque. Sin sucks. It's awful. It's the worst thing of anything you can imagine. And there are millions of people that are going to die in that sin with the holy wrath of God on them. Righteously so. Because God, by grace, because of who He was, or is, extended grace across them, extended the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they said, no, thank you. I'd rather die over here. And he says, good. I have a sentence for you then, and it's a righteous one. You're going to spend eternity away from me, just like you wanted. We had this discussion. I've sent my spirit specifically to you. We've had this discussion. I gave you the gospel. You said no. You said you'd rather be on your own. Okay. Okay, then. Have it your way. So all he's revealing here is the love of God, the mind of Christ. Love your enemies, do good, lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. In other words, evildoers in Psalm 5.5. 5, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. That, my friends, is the mind of Christ. Jesus basically said, think like I do, like my Father does. Be gracious because of who you are. Because you can't look at your enemies and go, well, I'm definitely going to be gracious because of them. No, 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 no. 
You're gracious because of who you are. And there's so much freedom in that, my friends. It doesn't matter anymore. You could have no friends by world value, right? I'm pretty close. I have a few. They're my family, so they have to be my friends, sort of. (laughs) You don't get that, though, right? You could have zero and still feel the full love of God. What do you think Jesus was feeling when he was on the cross, when people were spitting on him and mocking him and ripping his beard out and punching him in the face? I'm going to say he didn't feel like he was surrounded by too many friends. But for the joy set before him, he endured that cross, did he not? Motivated by what? Love. Was it for them? No. Was it for them? Yes. But you understand. It wasn't for personal love for them. It's because of who he was. He transcended it. Just That's exactly what he's saying. Transcend it. Don't love someone because of who they are. Because they suck. No, do you understand? Love them for who you are. That's the way God saved you. You were hopeless. You were a sinner. For a while, you were still a sinner. He showed his love to you. While you were an enemy of his. He hated you. You were an evildoer. He hated it. And he said, because of who I am, though, I'm going to show you grace. I'm going to cross that chasm. And you suck, mister. (laughs) Trying to loosen you up a little bit. Some of you are like, stop saying that. Sunday morning. If I was to fully describe this thing, I'd be swearing, spitting, flipping stuff over. Do you know how nasty sin is? Do you know how far away sin is from him? The whole thing is disgusting. It's like waiting in... You choose your semi-liquid. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's awful. I hate sin so bad. So Jesus said, just think like I do, like my father does. Be gracious because of who you are, not because of who your enemies are. So here's a recap of this morning's message up here on the board. For starters, learn to hate sin. Do not be overcome with hate, but rather understand the insidiousness of sin and learn to hate it. God does. We noted this in, up here on the board, Habakkuk 1.13, New American Standard Version. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Therefore, in keeping with God's holiness, up here on the board, Psalm 5.5, and he amplified, the boastful and the arrogant will not stand in your sight. You hate all who do evil. This was where some of you began to get uncomfortable. I could see it in you. It's normal. Because like many of us, you were lied to about the nature of God. At some point in your life, you either lied to about it, or you made your own, I don't know, you had your own thoughts about him. You know, minus this. You just had your own thoughts about him. You know, you thought, well, I like him this way, so I'll imagine him this way. And I won't bother anybody else. And I'll, I'll just say, oh, you can have your God and I'll have mine. And we can respect each other. And God's like, well, hold up, hold up. I'm the one that matters. So I don't care what you guys agree with. You don't get your little God and you get yours and you get yours and it's supposed to be me. <laughs> right? So a lot of us will lie about him. I lied too about him. And maybe you thought 
that God could never hate a person. Maybe you thought that, that God could never hate a person. But we just read in Psalm 5.5 that he most certainly can and does. And we can't dismiss clearly stated doctrine by saying something like, this is one of my favorites, and it's garbage. I get it. I understand the heart of it. But maybe you should drop it. Oh, he only hates the sin, not the sinner. One of those little contemporary quips, you know what I'm getting at? Oh, he only hates the sin, not the sinner. Hate the sin, not the sinner. Well, if that were true, he'd only sentence said sin to hell, not the sinners. Last time I checked, he doesn't sentence sin to hell, does he? Who's he sending to hell? Okay. Okay. So can we just be real and stop playing pretend so you can accommodate your little emotionalism? Can we just be real? Can we see it for what it truly is, what the Bible says it is? So to help us reconcile this human-born tension in our souls, the Spirit got a little Socratic with us up here on the board, the direction of God's hatred. If God only hates sin, then why does he cast some away from himself? Like for all of eternity, namely unbelievers who die in their sins. Could it be to preserve the purity of love itself? Could it be the just and righteous thing to do after all? Yeah, absolutely. In other words, since God is love, his holiness demands that he preserve the purity of it. Sin is filthy, impure, evil. Sinners whose sins are uncovered, in other words, not covered by Christ's sacrifice, and remain so, are rightly sentenced to spend eternity outside of the sphere of God. Doesn't that make total sense? Yeah. Someone who dies in his sins, they were given a lifetime to make a choice about the gospel, that unbelievably beautiful, gracious act that I just described. And they said, no, thank you. Maybe they didn't even say thank you. They just said no. And he said, okay, then. Have it your way. You can choose. It's your choice, remember. When the judgment, when the gavel comes down, just remember, it was your choice, right? Yes, I understand. Okay, go. And he hands them over even. The sentence comes down, and they're rightly where they wanted to be. They chose to be there. They said, I don't want you, Lord. I want to be my own God. I want to have my own little version of you. I want to believe in the kingdom of darkness. I want to believe in all these little gods and have idols and all this other stuff. I don't want you. So sinners whose sins go uncovered are rightly sentenced to spend eternity outside of the love of God in that sphere of spiritual death because that's the alternative where the opposite of love reigns. In other words, unbelievers will reside in the sphere of hate. Remember, if you know the Bible, you say, the Bible says that the, a person's conscience never dies in the lake of fire. So they're going to reside in that estate forever and ever. And it's not a jail term. It's forever. It's not 100 years and then you get off and you get to come to heaven. It's forever. 
And we think about that, my heart breaks. But all I can do to sleep at night is they chose. And that's where Satan and the fallen angels will reside for forever as well. Versus the believer's reality, which is up here on the board, Psalm 32, 1-2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. So for we believers, God shows us his own love, shows his own love to us. And the operative word there is to us, right? And I looked up the original language, and it's actually to. To educate and encourage us, up here on the board, Romans 5.8. But God is constantly proving his own love to us. Because while we were yet sinners, Christ in behalf of us died. In other words, he didn't love us for who we were. It wasn't a love for us. It was a love to us. He emanates it. So this, it's with this biblical perspective that we are able to conclude up here on the board, unlocking grace and the gospel. God is gracious because he is love. This graciousness has nothing to do with anyone else, nor anyone who receives the benefits of it. This grace proves his own love to us. Romans 5.8, Allah John 3.16. He loves because of who he is. It emanates. Not because of who we are. It's not attracted to us as sinners. Or he's not, I should say, he's not. Right? Or his love is not attracted to us as sinners. So when you hear someone say the gospel of Jesus Christ is also the gospel of grace, um, what they're saying is that grace is the very basis of the good news about being found a sinner without hope. I mean, God hates that person? Yeah. But yet he's, he is love, and so that love will emanate in a, a gracious act to reach across to his enemy? to those who chose to be estranged to him, and he'll reach across that thing, that's grace. Yes, that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Grace is what God uses because he emanates love as a function of who he is, not the sinner under his righteous wrath. And he extends a hand of reconciliation to himself. Go to Ephesians 2, 8, and we'll close. Ephesians 2, verse 8. This will drive it home. Thank God, because I lost my voice. Actually, we might be about the same as last week. That's how you think about love. That's how you think about hate. And that's how you think about grace. Hence this morning's message title. Love, hate, and grace. You have to have a biblical understanding of those concepts. Ephesians 2.8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. In other words, there was nothing good in you. God didn't magically see something good in you and say, I've got to save that one. That's like, uh, what's that, Romans... Um, that's Romans 5, 2, right? Maybe for a righteous person, one would dare even to die. He didn't say that. He said, Gah! 
I'm looking, that's awful. That thing over there is awful. Nothing to do with you at all. There's nothing attractive about you. Nothing. Everything's attractive about me. So if I can find a way to save you in your utter enmity against me, your unattractiveness, your sinfulness, the thing I hate, I'll do it because of who I am. That's called grace. He never moved, did he? He never moved. He never accommodated. He never said, well, you're 1% attractive. No. As soon as you go one iota, religion, bad religion. Religion, keep them here, orthodox. Move them, religion. Back, perfect, biblical, orthodox. Do not allow anyone, even your own thoughts, your own human flesh's desire to contort that, to pervert it. Again, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for giving us the truth, because we know that in the end, Father, it's the truth that sets us free. Thank you for giving us these warnings as caution, Father, to accept what we see in the Bible as truth. And to think about it. And thank you for giving us the faculties to do so. We just ask again for your patience as we do so, Father. We ask for you to give us strength and tenacity. And we, we pray for the Spirit's guidance and his, and his teaching and his mentorship throughout it all, Father. May we just shed all the other things as you sanctify us, even experientially, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.